Section 2 of The Voyage of the Pox, an Allegory, by Dom Beat Cam, OSB. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Mozart, Jr. When the mist passed away, I noted with some alarm that great black clouds were gathering on the horizon. Methought the stranger at the helm of the pox noted them also, but his young crew took no heed of them, nor did those of the other boats which were now scattered far and wide over the sea. And as I gazed, a large boat drew close to the side of the pox. It was the gay pleasure-boat whereon I had seen Eutyches embark. The purple sails, filled out with the rising wind, were bearing her swiftly onward. On her prow I saw her name inscribed in golden letters, Gloria Mundi. The large deck was crowded with the passengers, some reclining on easy chairs, others dancing to the strains of a viol, others again drinking out of gold or silver goblets. Very fair was the ship, and fair and bright were the faces of her passengers. All seemed full of gaiety and enjoyment, and I noticed that Eutyches seemed much engrossed in the conversation of the beautiful girl who sat by his side. Presently, however, he looked up and saw the pox close beside his own vessel. "'What ho, Calixtus! what ho, Symphorian!' he called out merrily. "'Are ye not tired of your dull old craft and your ceaseless toil? "'See what a fine time we are having on board this gallant boat! "'Plenty of amusement of all kinds, and not a stroke of work!' "'Both boys looked up at the call, "'and methought their eyes rested with some natural pleasure "'on the bright picture before them. "'Come and join us,' continued Eutyches. "'Don't stay moping there. "'Ye will see nothing of life on that dull ship with the black sails.' Why, it gives me the shivers even to look at it. Come, and we will have a merry time at the fair city of Voluptas, whither we are bound. Symphorian hesitated. He glanced at the stranger. Sir, he said at last, I am very tired of this work, and perchance the Gloria Mundi would suit me better. My child, remember what I told thee ere thou didst embark with me. I know, but I did not understand it properly then. Now would I fain go with you, Tychees. Go then, my son, I have no power to keep thee. Only remember that the city of Voluptas does not lie on the way to the Golden City, and that few of those who embark on yonder gay boat ever reach their haven. Oh, but some do, surely, and I will be one of them. Have no fear for me, good father. I was not made for the labors of a pilot boat. Farewell, Agathos. Farewell, little Theodore. I know it is useless to ask you to come with me, but thou, my Calixtus, thou wilt surely come. "'Nay, I know not,' replied the boy, his fair brow knit with the keen inward struggle that was raging in his mind. "'I know not. Fair indeed is thy ship, and much do I love pastime and music, and yet, I fear, thy craft is not so safe.' "'Be not a coward,' went on Symphorian, while the scornful laughter of Eutyches floated on the air. "'Come, bright boy,' cried a lady with golden locks, looking over the side of the Gloria Mundi. "'Come with me, and thou shalt have thy full of pastime and music.' Come, and I will teach thee many a pretty dance. And she smiled invitingly at the wavering boy. But Calixtus turned to the stranger. Father, he said, what shall I do? My child, he replied gravely, look at what our father Benedict hath written. And he drew out a roll from his breast and began to read. Deny thyself in order to follow Christ. Chastise thy body. Seek not after pleasures. Make thyself a stranger to this world and its works. This, my son, is the safe way that leads surely to the golden city. In yonder bark thou wouldst find pleasures indeed, but pleasures that would endanger thy safety, and bring thee into terrible peril. Calixtus looked in the old man's face. His bright eyes were dimmed with a tear, for the sacrifice cost him much, but he said bravely and resolutely, Father, I wish to serve the prince, and I will take thy counsel. 
Meanwhile, a little boat had left the Gloria Mundi to fetch Symphorian. Gladly he clambered into her, and, without waiting even to say good-bye to his old companions, pushed off quickly for the pleasure-ship. Agathos looked very sad, and little Theodore began to cry bitterly. All were so busy trying to comfort him that they did not notice that the lady with the golden locks who had addressed Calixtus was making signals to him once more. Kissing her hand to him, "'Farewell, fair youth,' she cried, "'fair thou art, but foolish. Still will I give thee a flask of sweet wine that thou mayst drink to our good voyage.' And so saying, she deftly tossed over into the boy's lap a golden bottle, which he took blushing and hid within his bosom. And as he did so, methought I heard a deep sigh fall from this stranger at the helm. And now the Gloria Mundi was already far on her way, keeping a different course to that followed by the pox. And whereas the breeze, which had now grown into a strong wind, drove the pleasure-ship quickly along its course, the pox, which was turned in another direction, had to battle against its force, and all sails being furled, the young crew had to work hard at the oars. Methought Calixtus cast more than one longing glance after the gaily painted craft, as he toiled at the oar till the sweat stood in great beads on his brow. At last his turn came to rest a while. "'Why should I not at least refresh me after my labor by drinking of the wine she gave me?' I heard him say to himself, and drawing the flask furtively from his bosom, he examined it carefully." Beautiful indeed it was, of pure gold, set with precious stones. Around it wound a golden snake with eyes of emeralds, and the reptile's mouth formed the orifice of the flask. On it was engraved the device, Concupiscentia Carnis. The boy started when he saw the serpent, which looked indeed most lifelike. Although so beautiful, the flask had an evil look, and I saw that he hesitated before opening it. He looked at the stranger as though once more about to ask his advice but quickly turned away and gazed, as if fascinated, at the flask with its flashing gems. "'At least I will open it and smell it,' he murmured, unscrewing the stopper of the flask the while. A sweet but sickly perfume rose from the open bottle. Calixtus turned pale, but eagerly smelled it again and again. Had he been rowing, he could not have yielded himself up so entirely to his uncanny treasure, but he was resting in the prow, and no one looked his way. Slowly, as if fascinated, by the serpent's jeweled eyes, he raised the flask to his lips and quaffed a few drops. "'Ah, how sweet, how sweet!' he exclaimed, and eagerly drank again. His eyes shone wildly, and his cheek was flushed with excitement or with the potent drought. And now a gentle voice fell on his ear, and hastily closing the flask, he thrust it in his bosom, and turned to see Agathos standing by his side. "'Calixtus,' he said, "'it is thy turn to row.' "'What? Wilt thou give me no rest?' the lad cried querulously. "'Work from morning to night. Ah, would I were with Symphorian!' "'Calixus,' said Agathos reproachfully, "'what has come to thee? But I know well thou dost not mean it. And indeed, if thou wilt, I will gladly take thy turn. Only wilt thou then take little Theodore?' And I had promised him that I would sing him to sleep. "'No, go away and leave me in peace. Why should I be troubled with the child?' Agathos was amazed. Was this the bright, cheerful Calixtus, who always had a kind word and a smile for every one? He could hardly believe his ears. Methinks thou art not well, he said. Art thou suffering, my Calixtus? Shall I send our kind guide to assist thee? No, go away, leave me in peace, said the boy, blushing hotly, and he turned his back on his questioner. Agathos sighed, but went away quietly, and I noticed that his lips moved softly, as if he were speaking to an unseen friend. No sooner had he left him than Calixtus, after a hasty look round to see that he was unobserved, took out once more the golden flask, and feverishly drank a long draught. Alas, it seemed not to refresh him, although he drank so eagerly. 
On the contrary, his eyes seemed wilder and his face more flushed than before. He was breathing heavily, too, and now and again he clutched his side as if in deadly pain. And now a bell rang out sweetly, and the voice of the stranger was heard calling all to the morning meal. The oars were shipped, and the anchor let down, for this was the hour of rest. The young crew soon gathered together on the upper deck, and only Calixtus was missing. Calixtus, Calixtus was the call of many voices, and presently they saw him coming. But how strangely he walked, or rather staggered, along the deck. The growing wind had indeed begun to ruffle the sea, but the motion of the vessel was not sufficient to account for the way the poor lad lurched from side to side. His face was deadly pale, and his eyes wilder than before. He had evidently been drinking deeply of the fatal flask. Even as he came near the group assembled on the deck, his feet slipped from under him, and he fell headlong with a piteous groan, and then lay still. The boys were about to rush to his side, but the stranger interposed. Leave him to me, my children. Carry ye quietly where ye are. Oh, he is dead, he is dead, wailed little Theodore, as he saw the stranger bending over the prostrate form of his favorite playfellow. But the others bade him hush, and watched with intense anxiety, as the stranger chafed the cold hands and loosened the tunic of the poor boy. As he did so, the flask escaped from his bosom, and fell with a thud upon the deck. The stranger picked it up. Alas, it is as I feared. He has been drinking poison, he cried, but he is not really dead. His heart still beats, and he redoubled his efforts to revive the boy. Presently Calixtus opened his eyes, and when he saw the stranger's grave face bent over his, the blood rushed hotly to his cheeks. Father, he murmured, father, I have sinned. Yes, my child, I know, I know, but it is not too late. Wilt thou take this antidote prepared by our great prince for cases such as thine? It is bitter, but it is a sovereign cure. Father, give it me. The stranger took from his breast a flask labeled penitentia. He poured some of the blood-red liquid which it contained down the boy's throat. Calixtus shuddered violently. The drought was very bitter, yet its effect was instantaneous. He rose to his feet, the glow of health in his cheeks, his blue eyes once more bright with happiness and life. There remains one more thing to be done, my child, said the stranger. Calixtus looked at him, and then his eyes fell to the ground. He saw the fatal flask lying on the deck. Blushing and trembling, he took it up, and with his strong young arm flung it far away into the sea. It is well, Calixtus, thou didst not know what thou wert doing when thou drankest first of that foul drug. And yet something told thee not to touch it, and when thou hadst tasted it, the craving grew for more, and yet, although so sweet, it left a fiery and a bitter taste. My child, hast thou drained it to the dregs, thy life must have paid the penalty. Never couldst thou have seen the golden city or the prince's face. O oh, my father, never, never again will I hide aught from thee. It is well, my son, and now let this be a secret ever between me and thee. Thy companions know nothing of the cause of thy faintness. Let them never know. Happy are they who have never tasted, never even dreamed, of the poisoned cup. As he said this, I noted that the boys upon the deck had seen and heard nothing of what passed between the stranger and Calixtus. Only now they saw him coming to them, bright and fair, the same dear playfellow as of old. And yet there was a change. Something of the boy's innocent gaiety had fled, and methought there was a trace of sadness even in the smile wherewith he greeted their rapturous welcome, and assured them that he was as well as ever. And now the hour had come for the morning meal. End of section 2